I want to welcome all of you that are here again today. Very thankful that you are with us. We delight in the Lord's Day. It is, for those of us that have forgotten, it's the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. We begin the week with worship. Our culture has lost that notion, but it is a notion to remember. We begin the week with our God. We don't leave him to be the last thing in the week. We're certainly glad that you are here. We're thankful for our visitors. I see a number of visitors today. Uh, You may be here for the baptism or the Lord may have just led you here one way or another. We're thankful that you're here. We're thankful to have the Bowers back. Really thankful to have you back. (laughs) Not just saying that. We're always delighted. Of course, we're glad when anybody comes back. We're thankful that God brings his people. And we're absolutely delighted that the Lord has uh, been bringing the Bowers our way. We delight in their fellowship and we're thankful for them as we are thankful for you all. If you have a cell phone, most of us do, would you please check it and make sure it's on mute. We would appreciate that. You can see, uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time, you can see that our children are with us and uh, we delight to have them here. We believe this is where they ought to be. Uh, But they're in training and sometimes they need to be uh, removed from this location into the next room Um, which has a large screen there. And if your little ones are having one of those days where it's taking a little longer than usual to quiet them, please um, take them back there. Our folks take them back there regularly. This is part of their training. And uh, within generally not a very long time, uh, we see them learning to sit through our services, for which I'm grateful. They hear the word of God preached. They hear the songs of Zion. They hear the prayers of faithful men. And for that, we praise and thank the Lord. Uh, We have been working through the first few verses of the epistle to the Hebrews. I've purposefully uh, dropped anchor uh, to stay here a little while because it is such a rich presentation of biblical Christology. The reading of Scripture, the knowledge that we take in of our God should do two things. It it will draw regenerate hearts to obedience and to worship. You cannot worship well, if at all, a God that you do not know. And he is set here so beautifully. I do pray that... Uh, We are all delighting, even though we've been here a few weeks. We'll move a little faster through some portions. But this is truly key to the rest of the book. This is a Trinity-filled book. It is a Christ-saturated, a Christ-drenched book. 
If you want your heart stoked to worship, uh, meditating even on these four verses, as well as the other chapters, will fill the hungry soul with Christ, the bread of heaven. So we're in Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to read the first four verses together. If you would stand one more time, let's stand, give our attention to the word of God, and let's read it together as we have for the last few weeks. We will read this aloud together, and I pray that our hearts will be fixed upon these living words. Okay. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen. Please remain standing. Father, I ask in thy holy name now, we have sung to thee. We have prayed. We've lifted up our voices to thee. We've cried to thee for thy presence and for thy power. We have thy living word before us. Please, O oh God, as we just sang a few moments ago, let our faith in thee become a living fire. Come and fill our souls with the fire from heaven, the fire from Pentecost, the fire of thy spirit that fills thy children and raises the dead into life in Christ. Oh, my Father, how I ask, help me to speak to thy people in a way for which I can give account in that last and great day. And Father, I ask thee, thou knowest the hearts of everyone gathered here and those tuning in. I pray, O oh God, move in the hearts of the lost. Move in the hearts of the lost. Show thy saving mercy. Show thy saving grace. And my Father, I do pray with all my heart that thy people would rejoice in thee, would delight in thee, would be overcome, overwhelmed with the glory and the beauty of who and what thou art and all that thou hast done to save our souls. And may it all be to thy great and eternal glory. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> As verses 1 and 2a reveal, God spoke in time past to the fathers by his servants the prophets. A prophet is a person who speaks to men from God. 
And God's revelation, God's speaking in those days through the prophets was a glorious gift of grace. However, in these last days, God has done something greater, something better, something of surpassing excellence in speaking by His Son. And in this text, the Holy Spirit reveals a remarkable contrast. Jesus' speaking is greater and better than the prophets speaking, while Christ and the new covenant are greater and better than Moses and the old covenant. And that theme runs throughout the letter to the Hebrews. Now, with that in mind, we began this series by considering six messages on the transcendent theme of God, the doctrine of God in very short compass. God the Father, who is unbegotten. God the Son, who is eternally begotten of the Father. And God the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Three subsistences, one essence, the one true and living God, the God from Genesis to Revelation that is revealed. There isn't any other. The one true living God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who sustains all things, that God exists and reveals himself in Scripture with three subsistences or three persons in that one essence, which is spirit. Now, we then turned our attention to the contrast between God's revelation by the prophets and God's revelation by the Son. Now, this led us to consider the incarnate or the incarnation of Christ, the Son, because the word Son is used two ways in the letter to the Hebrews. Let me go back, especially since we have uh, visitors here today. I I trust you know this. Uh, I'm not saying this in any kind of condescending way. This is strictly to make sure we're hearing correctly. The incarnation has nothing to do with the word reincarnation with which our nation has a love affair. Reincarnation is part of Eastern religion. But the incarnation is the miracle, the true miracle of the Holy Spirit working upon the Virgin Mary's womb and uniting the eternal Son of God, almighty, all-knowing, omniscient God, all all powerful and all present. That God, uniting that God with humanity. That's the incarnation. If you you want to try to remember it simply, it's God the Son became man. And he was and is now in two natures. He is fully God. Truly God is a better way to say it. He is truly God and he is truly man in one holy person. 
That is the only Christ to be found in the Bible. The living God is triune. At the heart of that triunity is the incarnation, the eternal Son who became flesh, as we're told by John's Gospel, chapter 1. So, this consideration of the incarnation was important, as I said, because the word Son is used two ways in this letter. And if we don't distinguish them, sometimes we can become confused as to what's actually being told us. Son applies to God, the eternal Son, and it applies to the God-man, that is, the eternal Son who took humanity to himself. It's just one Christ. But there are two natures in one person. And there are times when the eternal Son before incarnation is referred to in the epistle to the Hebrews. And then there are times after his incarnation, after the miracle of his birth. So, I can put that idea about Christ into a very simple sentence. I've repeated it last time. Christ is the Son who became Son. Christ is the Son, the eternal Son, who became Son, the incarnate Son. One more reminder, God never becomes. God always is. God never becomes. Becoming is creation. God never becomes. He is the eternal God. He is, that's why his name in Exodus 3.14 is I am. I am. He always has been. I am. He can say it at any time. It's always true throughout eternity. Uh, before he created, he was. I am. God is. But things become. You and I become. And we go too. We don't last long. <clears throat> now, that's very important for what we're going to consider today. God is. Creation becomes. Right? And that's the only state of existence. There isn't any other state of existence. There is God and everything else. Because everything else is creation. Now, <clears throat> One more time, Son applies to God, the eternal Son, and it applies to the God-man. That is, the eternal Son who took humanity to himself. If you sit and meditate on this, apart from the fact that you shrink significantly, it should bring you to worship. Why would God become man and come into this world? 
And it was because of his great love for sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now that whole idea, again, is going to be unfolded throughout Hebrews. That is why he became our great high priest. More of that in the future. So as we learned last time, the eternal son of God has always been God the son. The eternal son of God has always been God the son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, eternal deity, God. But when the eternal son was made flesh, John chapter 1, verse 14. When the eternal son was made flesh and became Jesus, the God man, he accomplished everything his father sent him to do to save his people from their sins. And that is why he is rewarded and crowned. But that's later in the book. <clears throat> we want this to be up close today. We want this to be right in our thinking. <clears throat> Jesus accomplished everything that his father sent him to do to save his people from their sins. As we've already said, he was miraculously born of a virgin. He kept the Mosaic law perfectly in our place. He was crucified as the sin-bearing substitute of his people. He rose from the dead the third day and he ascended into glory to be seated at his father's right hand. And that is where he is sitting in glory right now. He is ruling regardless of what the weak and feeble minds that fancy that they're going to rule this world think. The day is coming when they will meet the king and they will regret that they hoisted themselves up above their fellow man. And they will answer to God for the way they have mistreated them. <clears throat> now, Christ has ascended. He is seated in glory. Let me tell you what, there's not any CGI computer-generated uh, uh, images. There, there's not any fancy stuff that Hollywood that can come up with that will touch the glory of the living Christ sitting in the splendors of eternity. Nothing! And I'm saying this to you because I repeat what I said earlier. Sitting down with God's Word and getting alone with Christ, the Christ being held before us right now, it's what brings us to worship. Good theology ought to make you worship, not tired, not sleepy. It should set, and I will be the first one to admit, there are guys that write dreadful, dreadful theology books. They're great. If, if you can't sleep some night, pull them out. Five minutes, you're gone. But the fact of the matter is, generally, if someone is setting Christ before you from the words of God, you're hearing from God. And that should draw you out of your flesh. That should draw you into the glorious worship of Christ. Now, as he sits at the Father's right hand in his splendor, he that had no place to lay his head is now reigning over the universe. Well, there, 
At his father's right hand, he reigns as the priest king. The priest king. We'll see more of that as the book unfolds. But we're introducing it now because it is here. <clears throat> the priest king. So, having said that, we want to emphasize the son's vast superiority to the prophets. It's not a little superiority. It isn't like the Lord just kind of inched past the prophets in a nose-to-nose race. Nothing like that. It is the difference between the, the sun in its glory and a match. <clears throat> so, to emphasize that vast superiority, the author of the Hebrews gives seven descriptions that manifest his surpassing excellence. Those things that we say, they're, they're almost musical. There's a, there's a rhythm to them. But these, these, are, these are beautiful. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he created the worlds. Uh, all of these are just extraordinary. We can get a little lost sometimes in the King James English. Hopefully you won't. But take them and think through. Say them. Read them out loud. By the way, the authorized version was made and translated to be read out loud. <clears throat> if you follow it and read it carefully, sometimes you will find that there is something of a majesty in it that doesn't come when we're just sitting and reading quietly to ourselves. Uh, that's no law, by the way. If you want to read quietly, go ahead. <clears throat> so, here we are back at these seven descriptions. Uh, the title of the message is Seven Descriptions of Christ. And today is the word creator. Creator. <clears throat> May God the Father. And brethren, this is indeed my prayer for you. May God the Father grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with, with all saints what is the, the height and depth and the breadth, the length, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. That was Paul's prayer for us. That's something we ought to say, Lord, this was prayed for us. We want to know it. This was a prayer made to us, and not to us, to the Father for us. A prayer made to the Father for us. We should say, oh, we want to walk in that prayer. I want to know the height and the depth of Christ's love. And more than that, I want, to, I want to bathe in it. I want to be filled with it. And then I want it to gush out on everybody around me. So, we have one main head today, and it's this. The Son created all things. Actually, we could stop there, right? You just say, Amen, <laughs> and we go home. <clears throat> but the point is, the Son has created 
all things in our day of evolution and our days of the attacks upon uh, any thought of, of uh, anything other than millions and billions of years of evolution, uh, the, the very thought the sun has created all things sounds a little antiquated. In fact, to some it, it just sounds like foolishness. Will not be foolishness to those who stand before him in the day of judgment. Because he is indeed the creator of all things. This is what the revelation of God tells us. It's not to be laid aside for the whims. It's not even to be laid aside for the bullying of others. It is the living word of God. So in our last message, we considered that God has appointed Christ heir of all things. He is the heir of all things. All that the Father has. And that's everything other than himself. Remember, there's God and everything else. There's not any other category. So all that the Father has, which is all creation, he has given to his son, the God-man. He is the heir of all things, which means he's the owner of all things. When you are the owner of all things, you have right to the title Lord. It's all yours. Jesus owns all things and rules all things with all authority in heaven and earth. I will repeat that. When you, look at our, when you look at our world, when you look at our culture, when you, when you listen to uh, modern media, um, words like this almost seem foreign. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus owns all things and he rules all things with all authority in heaven and in earth. He is therefore king of kings. He is therefore lord of lords. And as such, he rules every aspect of the believer's life. Wait, did you miss that? If you say, I am a Christian. If you say, Jesus is the Lord. You have just said, he owns me, lock, stock, and barrel everything i am is his and for his glory there's also no other christianity in the bible it's what the idea of a lord is and you say well that sounds very un-american that sounds like, wow, that just sounds like chains and all of that. Let me tell you what, there's no greater freedom in the world than to be slave to Jesus Christ. Amen. Nothing compares. You're a slave to your own feelings. You are a slave to your uh, lusts. You are a slave to what you want to see, what you want to hear, what you want to do, what you want to put on your body, what you want to take off your body, what you put in your body. You're a slave to it apart from Jesus Christ. Freedom is being set free to do whatever he wants. He is the Lord. 
and he rules every aspect of the life he has given you. And it is the delight of all those born of his spirit to let those around them see that, that they humbly bow to the king. Now, the text then moves on from Christ as heir, Christ as Lord, Christ as king, to this. It says, by whom also he made the worlds. <laughs> That's such a short sentence. <laughs> it, is, it is immense. You and I don't have a mind that can comprehend this. By whom also God the Father made the worlds. The scriptures reveal Jesus as creator of all things. All those things that he's inherited are all those things that he has made. As we said last week, and let me say for those of you visiting, this is why talking about the two aspects of the word son, son who became son, The eternal son always owned all things because he always had created all things. But as the glorious God-man, he had a mission that God the Father gave him and he completed that mission. And in some way, it's hard for us again to fathom. He was blessed and given all things to rule and reign. And his people have entered that reign already, but the day is coming when we will reign with him for all eternity. Does that seem possible to you? Does that seem possible to you? with all the big corporations and all the big companies that have all their big contracts that say, mine, our property, that's our island, that's... The day is coming when we will be standing with Christ and we'll say, it's all ours. Sorry, you only had it for a while. But it will be in better shape. The Lord is going to burn up what we're looking at and restore it to a new heaven and a new earth. Now, you know, I, I can sympathize with people who are not Christians thinking, that sounds crazy. Don't let people like that have a gun. Right? Fact of the matter, our whole life is not about guns and bombs. It is about learning how to wield the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, and learning to walk in this world spiritually. Jesus himself said, Uh, wars and rumors of wars are going to be here till later on. But then he'll take care of that. So, I repeat, the scriptures reveal that Jesus is the creator of all things. The persons of the Trinity share the same essence. But there are clear uh, distinctions between them by their titles by their titles, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Nevertheless, the word of God is clear that the Trinity is the creator of heaven and earth. We may find passages that speak of the Spirit's work in creation, of Christ's work, as we're looking at today, and of the Father's work in creation. Now, let's consider some of the passages that declare Christ to us in this way. The text speaks of Christ's role. Chapter uh, 1 of Hebrews, verse 10, it speaks the very same thing of what we've read here. You see in verse 2, by whom also he made the world. Now look at verse 10. And thou, Lord, and thou, Lord, in the beginning hast said, the foundation, thou hast laid, not said, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. All right, everybody see the difference? Stuff, material, has an end. But God doesn't. This is the point we were making a while ago. There's God, and then there's everything else. Creation lasts only so far as God lets it. Creation lasts only as long as God lets it. It is his glorious work, and the day is coming when he will deal with with things as they are to make them what they shall evermore be. But again, the verse is a quote from Psalm 102. As I said at the beginning during our introductory introductory messages, this book quotes the Old Covenant over and over again, over and over again. That's what it's doing right now. The the man who wrote this under the power, the glorious guidance of the Holy Spirit says in Psalm, uh, he, he took Psalm 102 and put it right here in the text. Uh, slightly different wording. Thou Lord in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. There's a creator and the heavens are the works of, Of thy hands, there's a creator. They shall perish. But thou remainest. This is God. Everything else has an end unless we're united to Christ. Thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation. Notice that in the beginning language, in the beginning, and it shows up again. They shall, they shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. All the way through this, it goes back and forth between material items, stuff, things, creation, 
and the Creator. Now, it is true, uh, the, the souls of men uh, will last forever. Now, they had a beginning, but they will have no end. They will be in heaven with the Lord for eternity, or they will be under God's severe judgment in hell forevermore. That's one of those things that the Lord is not just going to burn up and it'll be gone. As many of us uh, watched in horror, seeing the fires move through Hawaii and Maui and, and, and all of that, um, one of the things that was constantly being said by the news was, well, it's just hell on earth. Well, it isn't. But it's a strong reminder. It isn't. Hell will be worse. That fire is over in some places. The fire of hell never will be. And those things that we used to have that are now burnt to ash, um, that will not happen to our souls. Our souls will be conscious as the word of God shows. Conscious in a dreadful condemnation. But the point that we want, and I do urge all to pray for those who have just been through that tragedy. What's being set before us, and it's being set on purpose, is the author of the Hebrews and the Holy Spirit wants us to realize that there's a very important thing about the Son. The Son, He will remain Everything else will wax old like a garment. But not the sun. Not the sun. <clears throat> In its original context, this is very interesting. That passage points to God. The subject of that passage is God. The writer of Hebrews knew exactly what he was doing. He was taking this passage that is talking about the unchangeableness, the immutability, and the eternity of God and applying it to the Son. The Son is the God-man. Number two, John chapter one, verses one through three. If you want to turn there, John chapter one, verses one through three. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Again, that word means almost nothing to the people of our day, especially of our, of our society. This is a great sorrow. But it still declares it. In the beginning, has that language, was the word. In other words, this, this person or this thing called the word was already there when creation started. <clears throat> In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. This speaks of two someones. And the word was God. It was passages like this that stoked the fires in the early church of, of the issue of Christology. 
How could God be one? The scripture speaks very plainly, as we've seen already. Uh, The Lord thy God is one Lord. How could there just be this one God? And yet there are clearly other persons, personalities here. That, That raised the entire issue of the Trinity. The Trinity really came into view in the New Covenant scriptures. What was what was hidden in the Old Testament becomes very bright and clear because of the new. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses have changed their translation of this. <clears throat> Let's see if you can tell the difference. All right? Their translation says... <clears throat> In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's not the the God of the Bible. But you see, everyone has to deal with this issue. These passages are there. They're in the Scriptures. Jesus isn't a God. Jesus is one with the Father, with the Son, uh, with the, the Holy Spirit. He is the Son with the Father and the Spirit. They share the same essence. So it is one God manifest in three persons. The same was in the beginning with God. With makes it clear there's a different personality there. Different person. Now, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's as plain as it can be. All things, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's power. That's power. He is the great and holy God. Number three, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, But to us there is one God. There is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things, by whom are all things, and we by him. In other words, Everything that is, is because of Christ. Now, do you believe that? You know, Christians say they believe the Bible, but very often they'll come and they'll read it. And when you point out what it's saying, they uh, start stuttering. They start wrestling with it. And one of the reasons for that is uh, because of the kind of education they get from our culture nowadays, from the things that feed them lies from the media day in and day out. Uh, they they are not familiar. Many Christians are not familiar. At least many professing Christians are not familiar with either the Bible or the God revealed in it. All things by whom are all things and we by him. <clears throat> the reference to Christ's deity is obvious. While Paul says that there is one God and then, spe- 
and then speaks of Christ as Lord, by whom are all things, every Jew understood from Scripture that creation was the work of God. By putting creation in the hands of Jesus, so to speak, he's saying Jesus is God. He is the almighty creator of heaven and earth. This is the God who saves sinners. Do you know him? <clears throat> He's not Santa Claus, thankfully. Number four, Colossians chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. This is such a beautiful passage. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. He not only made it, he sustains it. We'll see that, God willing, next week. He sustains what he's made till the time he's finished with it. This is the God who saves souls. He's not this pushover who's just waiting for you to let him do something. He's the almighty. He's letting us breathe his air at this moment. He's showing us his mercy by letting us hear his word. So, we can see right here some of the very things echoed there in Hebrews. <clears throat> For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. When it goes on to thrones, dominions, and principalities, and powers, it's even getting into spiritual beings. And he governs them too. Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. <clears throat> now, that last phrase is something we have to look at very carefully just for a few moments. <clears throat> the beginning of the creation of God. Once again, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, just telling you things that you'll hear if they come to your door. <clears throat> if you sit down and tell a Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus is God, this is one of the first verses he will turn to and say there's no possible way because he's a creation. And it says, it's right here, and they'll take you right there. Go to Revelation 3, 14, one of the first ones they'll turn to. He is not God, because listen to the words. <clears throat> These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. There it is. It's right there. He's a creature. It's as plain as it can be. Now, the word beginning comes from the Greek, which means origin. Everything has its beginning in him. That's the idea. All right. He is the beginning. He is that from which 
all creation comes. Everything else that has a beginning begins in him. Now, there are other passages, but these are the primary ones that speak very plainly of the fact that Jesus is creator. There are some that tell us the Father is the creator, and there are those even in the very first passage of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep, obviously part of the creative act. So, Jesus is not only our Savior, Praise the Lord. And not only our Lord, praise the Lord, he's our creator. Does that cross your mind? That's something that we should think about more often. Do you realize that you, you exist, you breathe, you have a body that's functioning, or like some of us, uh, beginning to uh, non-function here and there. But you're still going. So... So, do you think much when we thank the Lord for saving us, which we should always do, do ever thinking for making us? I mean, when you were in your mother's womb, you weren't saying, I want to be born. The very way that God has made it, you're here because of a force beyond your own. And that goes from your mother and your father to the living God who made you. Well, so what is the meaning of creation then? We want to talk about that for a few minutes. What is the meaning of creation? We, we've looked at the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed the living and true God, and he was truly man. And that extraordinary person in what we call, again, the incarnation. So let's talk about creation for a few moments. Let's remember his humanity was created. That's the only thing about God that ever became. But it had nothing to do with. It had no effect is what I mean to say. It had no effect on his deity. But that body was created and carried by Mary. When we hear the word creation and when we are asked what it means, of course, most of us in our day have probably never been asked. (laughs) No one believes in it. Or very few, maybe the Lord's people are about the only people that will sit down and talk about it. But that's not what our culture holds. Creation? (laughs) Uh, Go to your little green men and your fairy tales. But when we hear it, when we hear the word creation, do we think any better? Do we really think about creation and why it's important and why it actually impacts us? When we're asked, most of us would probably answer, If you don't qualify for this, that's fine. If you're not in the probably, that's okay. But most of us would probably answer, oh, well, uh, the beautiful snow-capped mountains, the oceans, rivers, and seas, and their deep mysteries, the burning sands of the desert, the stars and the constellations at night, 
A majesty of great forest, acres of lovely flowers, stunning natural gardens. The skies with their blazing sun or gentle moon. The creatures of every sort that inhabit all the nooks and crannies and caves and fields and jungles and bodies of water. You know, creation. Now, that would be true. But can I press you here for just a second? That would be true. But you notice where you started, those of us that were in the probably group. Mm -hmm. with the thing made, not the maker. And the thing about creation is the maker, the glory of the creator. So, To say, yeah, oh, it's all this wonderful stuff that we look at, oh, the beautiful sunrise, that's all great. That's all wonderful, and you should look at it and say, what a great and glorious God that made this, etc. That's not wrong. But the issue is it misses something really big. (laughs) The glory and the beauty of the one who said, let there be light. And there was light. None of us are able to do that. Right? How many of you have sat down, spent an afternoon trying to think a one-cell creature into existence? If you did, it was a boring afternoon. You never got there. You can't create. And men are constantly using the word, well, I created this. I created this. I created that. No, you already took something that was already there and did something. God created from nothing. So let me begin with this thought. A proper understanding of creation begins with God. Not the creation itself, as much as we should praise him for it. We're not not Xing it out. We're just saying, how about getting to how glorious one, uh, the glorious one conceived And made these things by simply willing it into existence. Only God can create. Men can mimic. Demons can mimic. Only God creates. Now the Jews knew this, by the way. And that's one of the reasons there are so many references to creation and Jesus' deity in the epistle to the Hebrews. Because... The writer is plainly and clearly pointing out the deity of Christ. So, <clears throat> only God can create. Herman Bavink, theologian, defines creation this way, and I, I thought it would suit our purpose. There are many definitions, by the way, as with many other things in theology. But creation is the act of God. That's an important beginning it is an act of God through which by his sovereign will he brought the entire world out of non-being into being that is distinct from his own being 
You got it? No. <laughs> that's, that's immense. But it's, I like it because it was just one sentence. <clears throat> it would have taken me about 10 pages. Let's hear it again. Creation is the act of, the act of God through which by his sovereign will, he brought the entire world out of non-being into being that is distinct from his own being. That's, that's really important. Once again, it's saying exactly what I said a while ago. It's God and everything else. It is God. It is creator or creature. That's the only existence that there is. What about spiritual beings? They're still stuff. <laughs> They're immaterial beings. They're created. They're created. He is extraordinary. And so he isn't becoming, he didn't have to create. That's another thing about creation. It's not necessary. Not one of us in here is necessary, beginning behind this pul pulpit. God created because he wanted to. There was no necessity whatsoever. Well, he, I mean, I've, I've heard people say, oh, God was lonely. So he created us? What a headache. Yeah. Wait a minute. I think I like silence a lot better than this. No, there was no need. There's a reason that God created. He had a purpose. And that's why. It's important to say creation is an act of God because he had a purpose, not a necessity, but a purpose. In fact, if you wanted to argue, well, there, it was necessary because he decreed it. Okay, I'll go along with that. But the fact of the matter is he didn't have to decree it. It came to pass because he decreed it, because he wanted to. And what he decreed is what's happening. He's not sitting there going, man, I'm... I guess I missed plan B. Never. It looks that way to us, but that's not the way it is. Listen carefully. Let's think about this a, a bit more. As I said that there are, there are only two forms of being, creator and creature. God and not God, if you prefer. It is God and not God. We could all have a t-shirt, right? blazoned not God as much as men want to be <clears throat> let us consider our confession once again but first we want to understand something about the way our confession is constructed if you'll bear with me this is just a little detail but it's an important one believe it or not <clears throat> our confession and good confessions are not just eggheads Sitting around thinking, oh, let's throw a bunch of verses together and throw them into some paragraphs and sell it and make some money. Or let's, let's get our own thing going here. Uh, people may do that, but not Christians, not born-again men. What they do is they study the scriptures until they have some idea that this is what the scriptures are speaking throughout. Right? Now, our confession... Uh, as I always say, it's not inspired. It is not infallible. It has infallible words in it from the scriptures, but the, the confession itself is simply 
a gathering of the truths that are found scattered throughout Scripture, and there's actually a logic and a purpose to it. And when you get that, all of a sudden it takes it just from being, uh, well, this is chapter 1, I'm moving over to chapter 2 now. If you'll stop and think, you will see that chapter 1 moves right into chapter 2. And chapter 2 moves right into chapter 3. And very often, you're three or four, five or ten chapters down the way, and you realize, wait, this is all connected. Because that's the way God's truth is, is given. <clears throat> it is. Uh, I, I'm not saying the Bible is connected that way. The Bible very often seems like it was kind of thrown together, but it, it wasn't. But what I'm saying is that the confession very, very much has a plan in the way that it's laid out. Let me try to put it to you this way. <clears throat> it is constructed, and it begins in chapter 1 with this. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge. All saving knowledge. You hear that? Faith and obedience. Just the very first sentence is talking to you about revelation from God and it's saying, this is what you need. This is the primary thing that you must have. God's word. I just think that's one of the best sentences I've ever read. <clears throat> it is here. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. You don't need to go outside the pages of this book to know how your immortal soul can be saved. It's when we go out very often that we get in trouble. So, <clears throat> then, then after that sentence, ten paragraphs give us numeral, uh, numerous uh, biblical passages to teach us what Scripture teaches about itself. These are all passages that tell us certain things about the Word of God so that we can understand something about this oftentimes mysterious book. Then that's followed by the God of the Word, chapter 2. God and the Holy Trinity. The Word of God and then God of the Word. That's done on purpose. God actually existed before the scriptures do. Scriptures are part of creation. All right? But we start with the revelation God has given us of himself. So that's with the scriptures. How do we know who created the heavens and the earth? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We know it because God's revelation sets him forth and his glorious acts. And the first act in the Bible is creation. He's doing something on purpose, for a purpose. So these 10 paragraphs are, are, are wonderful. Then we see the word of God. We read that the last few weeks uh, where we look at God and the Holy Trinity. It, can, it contains three huge paragraphs of scripture very often they're uh, they're just lines directly out of the scripture <clears throat> and then chapter three comes and it gives us seven paragraphs on god's decree 
God's Word, the God of the Word, what God's going to do. The decree is what we call one of the inner works of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit purposed things. Purposed things. It was not an outward work. It was, a, it was like we. We have an idea and then we try to follow it through. Not trying to make God a big human. Just saying there was thought. There was purpose. That's the one of the words that Scripture uses. God's eternal purpose. He planned. He designed. <clears throat> And chapter 3 gives us seven paragraphs about that. Once again, there is purpose in the order. God's revelation, the revelation of God. <laughs> then the internal work of God, his sovereign will and eternal purpose. Consider just one paragraph from chapter 3 about the decree. Listen carefully. And God hath appointed the elect unto glory. So he hath by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore they who are elected being fain and fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are there any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. And then chapter 4 comes. Right? This was not something that was happening yet. This was the purpose. And then comes creation. Creation is where God works out his eternal purpose. That's the external work of God. He has purposed something. And that purpose is an inner work that becomes an outer work. And it's totally his will. So when we talk about creation, it isn't just, oh, Cute animals, pretty flowers. Those are all great things. It's about his eternal purpose to save sinners. You can't separate creation from that. So, here's chapter 4. Listen carefully. First three words. In the beginning... It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. Number two, after God had made all other creatures, He created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God, for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts, and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, which they did, 
being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. That's a remarkable paragraph. Every, every phrase is really important. Number three, besides the law written in their heart, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which whilst they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Creation was an act of God. Creation was an act of God to fellowship with those creatures made in his image. But he did make them fallible. God alone is infallible. Man could stay righteous or, or, or move into unrighteousness. That's what he chose to do. Right? And everything changed. If you're older than 40 and you're aching in places you didn't used to, why is that happening? <laughs> There's a lot of reasons. Now, those of you that look back at the picture of your wedding and you see that lovely couple and you go to the mirror and amazing things go through your mind about what's happened to your body, right? You're dying. Everybody in this room is dying. You're dying. And it's going to end. Along with all that dying is going to come death. Why? We just read it. <clears throat> they could have been happy in their communion with God, but they didn't. They went their own way. They believed a lie. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die, said God. Satan came along and said, no, nah, I don't believe that. Don't believe that. Don't believe that. No, everything you see is running down. Even when it's brand new, it's, I mean, buy a car and try to sell it back two weeks later and get all your money. In minutes you drive it off the parking lot, unless things have changed the last time I bought one. I mean, it devalues right away. That's the way this world runs. It's the way it works. Not only, not only do things run down, we run down. Our bodies run down. What I want you to see is that sin changed everything in the world. Everything. Everything. And it's still changing everything around you. Sin is what entered the garden. The creation was beautiful. It was beautiful. They had everything they needed, everything they wanted. They were naked and not ashamed. And, and the Lord didn't say, all right, now Tuesdays, you have to eat persimmons. All right, uh, Wednesdays, that you can have a cantaloupe. Uh, on Thursday, he said, no. You see everything here? You can eat out of any one when you want to. But don't eat out of that one. And that's the one they went to. That changed creation. It changed everything. Now, let me, let me run for the finish line here. <clears throat> the reason I've said that before you is because I want you to recognize that in our confession, you're actually getting the story of the Bible unfolded for you. Yes, it's, it's very wordy sometimes, 
But if you look at the scriptures and read them carefully, you will begin to see that they've done a generally good job of unfolding the story of the scripture and the theology that they're setting before you. And that's exactly what was taking place. Revelation, the Bible, we can know who God is. And here's the God of that Bible. And that God predestined things. That God planned things. And creation was the first step. Those of you who remember what I said about biblical theology, first things begin with last things in view. That creation, when he said, let there be light, that was first things. At the end was the light that will be Christ and the Father in the glory of heaven, and there will be no night there. It was all going that way from the very first word. Well, let me, let me push this out very quickly, and then we'll be done. We'll have our baptism. Why is the Son presented as heir and creator? That's what's set before us. The Holy Spirit moved the authors to say he's heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So in these two simple statements, we have an outworking of redemption. And we're going to see it more and more in the statements as they unfold. God's eternal purpose in redemption and the exceeding greatness of Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is Lord, because Jesus is the creator, that makes him greater than the prophets, all of them put together. It makes, them, makes him better than Moses. Moses couldn't create anything. And it makes his covenant better. His covenant is better than Moses's. We'll see plenty of that as we work through the epistle to the angels. We will see, my friends, that he's greater than the angels because he is the Lord and the creator of them. He's greater than the angels. And all of those things that the Hebrew Christians were running back to, he's greater than all of that because he fulfilled what those things were standing and pointing to. They're going back to the road signs that were pointing to Jesus. Now, I want you to think with me just a little bit further and we're done. I want you to think. long before the eternal Son of God became the God-man, Jesus Christ, he had purposed a material universe in which to enter. Creation is the stage for God's mighty work of redemption. As creator, he purposed and created land on which he would one day walk and reach the lost and dying souls of Israel. There had to be a place for him to work out that glorious decree in chapter 3. Think with me. He purposed and created the seas so that he would one day 
walk on the water to show his power. Do you ever think about your creator? He created the entire theater in which to do everything that he did. He could work his miracles so that men would see the glory of God. Where did he do it? In creation. As creator, he purposed and created the laws of nature so that he could show his miraculous powers over them. He purposed and created human life so that he could die in the place of his people. He created people to save people so that he could die to save them. He purposed and created female anatomy so that he could be born of a woman. God, God, born of one of his creatures. He purposed and created sheep to represent him and his people that he might be the lamb that was slain. He purposed human beings with immortal souls to save some, to leave some in their sins, and some to be his executioners. As we'll see in another message, while they were killing him, he was sustaining their breath. He purposed trees so that he could be nailed. So that he could be nailed to one. It was his creation upon which his blood was spilled. He purposed and created blood to flow through blood vessels so that he could pour his out on the ground for his people. Creation was the place where the great decree of God was worked out. Though we might stand and look at it and say, look how beautiful, that's all great. But just remember, God created this globe and put it in this universe so that his son could save his people from their sins. So brethren, Jesus the Lord and Jesus the creator is greater than any and everything in the old covenant. Let us meditate on our creator and creation as it was given. And let us love him with all of our hearts. Those of you that do not know him, I urge you with all my heart, come to him. He is the creator, but he's the savior and he is the Lord. Those of you that know him, love him and serve him and worship him with all your heart. Amen.
Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank thee for thy goodness. We are astonished at what's out there. When so many of us lived in our rebellion in your beautiful and lovely creation, you came into this world to save us from our sins. How we bless thee. I pray, Lord, that those who do not know thee here will repent of their sins and believe on the crucified and resurrected Savior. And for those of us who have known thy amazing grace, may we love thee evermore. In the name above all names, amen. We're going to make a quick change so that we can have our baptism. We certainly welcome all of you that want to stay. It will not be a, a, a very long service, but it is a wonderful sermon in the water.